So I'm sitting here in front of three young, beautiful daughters. Have you ever said, Mom? Just like that? Probably. Probably. How many moms have heard that before, right? Oh, look at the hands go up. Yeah. Mom. I'm sure, uh, Lily, you might have said that in the last week. You know, uh, this kid right here, this kid is amazing. I found out Wednesday night. If you ever just want to, like, meet some pretty incredible people, you need to come on Wednesday night and hang out with our students. But I found out that Lily, who is in what grade? Sixth grade. Uh, found out that her mom was planning their spring break trip to either St. Louis or Nashville 1. I think originally it was St. Louis. But Lily decided that she didn't want to go to St. Louis. So she put together a Google Slides presentation on why it would be better to go to Florida than to St. Louis. And she researched hotel cost in St. Louis and uh, hotel cost in Florida, and she found a cheap hotel in Florida. She calculated the mileage to each place and how much uh, gas that it took for their specific car to get there. And this was like a 20-page presentation on Google Slides that she presented to her parents. And so tomorrow, they are going to Florida. <laughs> tomorrow, Tuesday, one. Tuesday. So uh, nice work there. I'm telling you, it, it was amazing just to, to watch the whole thing. But uh, moms, moms are, uh, my mom turned 84 last Sunday, and she uh, is alive and well, doing great in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And uh, funny, the funny thing is, I've said mom a few times like that in my life, and I'm probably still doing that at my age, mom. Uh, but of all the people that have expectations uh, on me, it's probably my mom. You know, and, and it's not necessarily bad. I remember uh, back in February when I spoke at OBU at chapel, she came one of the days and sat on the front row, and as she was driving home, she called me and said, one of these days, you're going to be the president of that university. I'm like, Mom, you're, you're crazy. <laughs> but uh, she's always had these expectations, and uh, I think that's just the way that moms are. They have, like, dreams of what you're capable of doing, and uh, of course, they're your kids. So today we come across that story where Jesus is interacting with his mom. And it's kind of interesting. I, I, I found out as I've read this story over the years that Mary was probably one of the first wedding coordinators. <laughs> and as a pastor, that's important, you know, to have those wedding coordinators that know what's going on and make things happen during the day, but uh, let's let's pick up where uh, we left off with Jesus, 
and we're going to discover his very first sign. It's in John chapter 2, verse 1. It says, on the third day, you get these Jewish days, if you go back and you... you you kind of like put this under a Jewish tradition, you're assuming that this third day is probably the third day after he had just talked to Nathaniel. That's where we left off last week, is that he said, Nathaniel, come follow me. You're, you're one of mine. I want to disciple you. And remember, these young teenage boys, young teenage boys were not the best of the best of the Jews, and they wanted to be, and they saw this as an opportunity. So now Jesus has got some of his disciples with him, and we're talking specifically about those 12. We know that Jesus had many more disciples. He probably had a full circle of well over 100, but there were 12 that he focused on specifically. It says, On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Now, if you remember, I'll show you here in a minute, but if you remember uh, where Galilee was, the Sea of Galilee, Cana was just between Nazareth and Galilee. I'll show that here to you in a second. It says, Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. So now we know that Mary was there at the wedding, and if she was a wedding coordinator, she wanted to make sure her son was fed and made sure that her, his disciples were fed, and so they were obviously invited to the wedding. It says, when the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. Like, she came to her son, and I don't know if she freaked out or what, but uh, she's like, we, we have an issue here. And Jesus says to her, what has this concern of yours? Well, if she was in charge, she would like want to like make sure that there was plenty of wine. He says, what has this concern of yours to do with me, woman? He calls his mom woman. Yeah, I heard that over here. <laughs> Kevin just turned to his son and says, try that sometime. <laughs> like to see how that turns out. Woman, what does this have to do with me, mom? And Jesus asked, and Jesus had asked that question, and then he says, my hour has not yet come. In other words, mom, you, you've got some expectations on me that uh, I can't do right now. This is, this, is, this is not the time nor the place to do this. I know that my time is coming, and that place is going to happen in Jerusalem. Jerusalem needs to be the first place that Jesus' miracles are displayed to the public. In verse 5, his mother told the servants, Hey, you do whatever he tells you. Jesus just said, Mom, this isn't my time or place. And Mary looks at him and says, says to the servants, you do whatever he tells you. Like, son, you're going to do this right now. Like, they're out of wine. I know what you're capable of doing. I'm sure that she's seen things already. 
surely she's seen things or else she wouldn't have put this expectation on her son that she knows he's capable of doing. Do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. Now six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. You're talking about handcrafted ceramic pottery that held anywhere from like 16 to 27 gallons of water. And this water would sit there and basically they had a way of purifying by just letting it sit. It says each contained 20 to 30 gallons. That's the Holman Christian Standard Version. It says Jesus told them, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the chief servant. And they did. So let's get this straight. First of all, who all was present at that time? If the chief servant isn't even in, in the room that Jesus is doing this thing, I know, one, that Jesus has got his disciples with him, and he's wanting them to be with him every step of the moment. He's wanting them to see every sign, every miracle, everything that he does, because that's what the rabbi does, is he takes his student, and he brings them along, and he teaches them. And obviously his mother's there. Mary's there. So now he's got Mary, he's got his disciples, and he's got these servants. They're the only ones there. They're the only one that sees what has just occurred. That Jesus took this water and he turned it into wine. It doesn't say that he turned it into grape juice. It says that he turned it into an alcoholic beverage named wine. This is what Jesus did, and it was what was used as they celebrated the weddings. It says in verse 9, When the chief servant tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. He called the groom and told him, Everyone sets out the wine first, then after people have drunk freely, the inferior but you have kept the fine wine until now you see what had happened was this is obviously they drank and drank and drank until there was no more wine the wedding preparers those that coordinated the wedding they obviously had thought that they had plenty of wine but they drank so much of it they ran out then there's the issue Mary goes to Jesus. Jesus says, all right, we're going to do this. He turns the water into wine, and all of a sudden, it's better than the first round. And the chief servant's like going, this isn't right. You're supposed to, like, serve the better stuff first because once they're drunk, they can't taste it. You serve the cheap stuff second. And so now we see that Jesus has performed his, what has been labeled as his first miracle. But the key here is that it was done privately. John says in verse 11, Jesus performed this first sign. He didn't even call it a miracle. 
this first sign in Cana of Galilee, he displayed his glory and his disciples believed in him. You see, all right there in those verses, we saw who he did it in front of. It says the servants were there. Mary was there. She's the one that told him to do it. And then it says the disciples saw exactly what he did, and they saw the glory. Now, let's think about this for a second. That glory that was just spoken there by John is the same glory that showed up in the burning bush when Moses was there and received the Ten Commandments. The glory of God. You remember where his face just like changed. And he had to wear this veil because it was eventually fading. It's that same glory that led them through the wilderness day and night, through the fire and the smoke. It's that same glory that we're talking about that eventually disappeared But now, all of a sudden, when baby Jesus is born, the glory of the Lord shone around them. That same glory that was through the Old Testament is now shining. It's the reality that God of the Old Testament is acted anew in Jesus Christ. And the disciples are like seeing this for like the first time. He truly is the Messiah. And then it says in verse 12, after this, he went down to Capernaum together with his mother, his brothers. Jesus actually had brothers. That means Mary and Joseph had more kids than just Jesus. They would be his half-brothers, right? Because even though Joseph was his earthly father, He was not his natural father. So it says that he, together with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they stayed there only a few days. Let me show you real quick on a map uh, where it is. This is uh, modern-day Google Map. Hey, look at this. If you go on Google Maps now, they give you Pac-Man. Don't do it right now. All right, don't go on Google Maps right now, but it's a new thing they just, like, added this week. Uh... But here's Nazareth. This is where Jesus grew up. Here's what is, was Cana at the time, which is where the wedding took place. And then they traveled all the way up. Here's Tiberias, all the way up to Capernaum. It's probably about 35 miles. It says they're going to Capernaum. And this is, remember, Nazareth is where Jesus was later rejected by his own people. As the Messiah. His own hometown. And so he ended up doing most of his ministry there on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. Verse 13, it says this. The Jewish Passover was near. So Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Okay, so now we've traveled from Cana to Capernaum. Now we're going to Jerusalem. Here's Capernaum, Sea of Galilee. Here's the Jordan River that they traveled along and probably came across this area from through the wilderness in Jericho down to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem because this is where Passover took place. Google says this is 107 miles. It'll take you three hours by car to get there. 
So now Jesus has made this trek every year since he was a child. They go to Jerusalem for Passover. It's what all good Jews did. They had to take that sacrifice to the temple and make that on a yearly basis. This was what? An atonement for their sins. Remember this? Atonement being that it covered the sins. That it covered the sins. It even like took away the sins. Remember they had the scapegoat. But it didn't do what? It didn't forgive sins. It didn't forgive sins. It just covered them. There's a big difference. They weren't going to be forgiven until Jesus was on the cross. It says, In the temple complex, he found people selling oxen, sheep, and doves, and he also found the money changers sitting there. Now, let me show you a picture of what we're talking about here. If you actually go to Jerusalem, which hopefully uh, we're working on something like that with us, uh, you'll see this picture, no picture there. No pictures at all? It didn't download? Nothing. Bummer. All right. I'll show it to you next week. But here, here let, me, let, me just, let me try to like paint the picture for you. In my, in my own mind, I have it. But you've got Herod's temple up here. You, re, you really got the wall of Jerusalem that's all around Jerusalem. Then you've got like Herod's temple that they had spent some 40 to 50 years rebuilding this temple that Solomon had originally built that was destroyed in 586 B.C. So now Herod's rebuilt this temple. This is the Temple Mount. This is the same Temple Mount that you see on the Google Maps. You go there, you see the, the Dome of the Rock that's on there now. It's controlled by the Muslims. But it's the same Temple Mount where Abraham was supposed to sacrifice Isaac. This is exactly where that Temple Mount is. It's a holy place in biblical language. So Solomon built the temple. It was destroyed. Now Herod's built this temple. It's got a southern wall down here with the Solomon's columns, a colonnade. And then in the middle right here is the temple itself. There's a woman's court right here in the front. And then there's a Gentile's court right over here. And then the Holy of Holies is inside there. I wish I had it here to show you. Technology fails, all right? So what happens is certain people can only go in certain areas. Like the Gentiles could actually come into the Temple Mount, but they had to stay in the Gentile court. They couldn't go further than that. And in the women's court, the Jewish women could enter this, but this is as far as they could get. And then the high priest was actually in the temple himself. And the chief priest was the one that actually entered into the Holy of Holies, and made that annual sacrifice. He would take the blood and put that in there. All right? So what happened now is this, is Jesus has come to the temple. Jesus has come to the temple, and he's <clears throat> seen that it's just like overrun by people. Like the Gentiles have one area that they can go and worship God. And it's overrun by all these people 
that are doing this. He found people selling oxen, sheep, and doves, and he also found the money changers sitting there. Now, here's what happened. And Jesus experienced this all of his life. Is that Joseph and Mary would pack up their stuff, and they would go, and Joseph was responsible for finding this one perfect animal. Had to be perfect. And they would take this to the temple for Passover, and they would have the priests actually slice the neck of the animal and blood would pour out, and that would be the sacrifice for their sins. But every year they got to the temple. These priests were sitting there, and they were corrupt. And they go, let me see your, your Passover sacrifice that you've brought. Nope, not good enough. There's a blemish here. But we have one that's perfect that we'll sell you. You don't have to go all the way back home to get another animal. We have one right here, but it comes at a high price. And Mary's looking at Joseph and he's like, why do you do this every year? Can't you get a perfect animal? And Joseph's like, you know, pulling out the pocketbook. And disgustingly having to pay these priests for another animal. It was a racket. You understand, there's rackets that go on all the time. And this is what's happening now. You've got all the, to think, that all the Jews that are coming to the area, you're talking about thousands of Jews coming to the area, they're all having their animals like, sorry, these aren't good enough. So now this whole Gentile area is just full of animals waiting to be sold to the Jews at a high price. It's chaos. And not only that, but there's this temple tax that they have to pay. You know, the the temple wasn't free. It's like a toll gate. You have to pay your temple tax. And so look, if you have Roman currency, it's probably got Caesar's head on it. And you can't put money in there that has caesar's head on it it has to be jewish currency so if you don't have the right currency we'd be happy to exchange this currency for you but there is a fee for that these were the money changers all this corruption was happening in the gentiles court and there was no place for the gentiles to worship Jesus saw this his whole childhood, his whole teenage years, and now he's finally a man with a mission. This is his public ministry. And he's fed up to the point of, it's about time I do something. Look, if they're going to know that I'm the Messiah, we're going to let it be known. It's time. Because remember what happens. Remember what happens. There's two points of investigation. One, there's the observation. They observe, and if it's the Messiah, we're just going to observe. But then if, like, miracles start to happen, we're going to start asking questions. Well, Jesus says, it's time. says, verse 15, after making a whip out of cords, he drove everyone out of the temple complex with their sheep and oxen. He also poured out the money changers' coins and overturned the tables. You think Jesus was angry? 
I believe that he was. And listen to me. This isn't the only time that it happened. It happened again. It happens later. But Jesus has come in. He's like, this is my father's house. This is not a place to exchange currency and to rip off all the Jews. This is evil that's going on in my father's house. It says he also poured out the money changers coins and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling doves, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. The disciples are sitting there watching this thing and they're going, we could put this on YouTube. (laughs) You know they are. They're teenage boys. They're loving every minute of it. Look what Jesus is doing. Can you believe this? They weren't going to do it. They weren't going to be accused of it. But then they're hanging out, and one of them says, and his disciples remember that it's written, zeal for your house will consume me. The zeal, just the passion the love, the care for your house will consume me. This, this was words that were written by David in Psalm 69.9. The disciples remembered it. Why? Because they memorized the Old Testament. And all of a sudden they go, hey, remember when David said this? The zeal... For your house will consume me. They're saying Jesus was consumed. They watched it in front of their very eyes. So the Jews replied to him, Jesus. He says, what sign of authority? They're asking a question. What sign of authority will you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered, destroy this sanctuary and I will raise it up in three days. Now, you're sitting there, and you're like going, oh, I get this. This makes sense. But to them, they're totally confused. It says, therefore, the Jews says, this sanctuary took 46 years to build. And you say, you're going to raise it up in three days? Look, when Luke came up here, he said, I come up here, and I come up here with the Spirit in me. These Pharisees, these Jews did not have the Spirit in them. In fact, Jesus' disciples didn't even have the Spirit in them at this point. So the ability for you to sit in this room with the Spirit of God in you and to be able to look at this book right here and to be able to read it and to be be able to understand it and to interpret it for it to be revealed to you is because there's a holy living God inside of you. And so these Jews and these Pharisees, they couldn't even begin to understand what Jesus was saying to them. You're gonna, we destroyed this temple mount, and you're going to do it in three days, what took, what's taken us 46 years. Verse 21, it says, But he was speaking about the sanctuary of his body. Jesus wasn't even like talking about that physical stone temple. He's talking about his body being the temple. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. 
this was like all of a sudden John's like going forward to the end of his book and saying, hey, when Jesus was crucified, he was buried, he rose again on the third day. All of a sudden the disciples went back to this very moment and said, I remember when he said we do this. It makes sense now. All of a sudden it makes sense. And they believed the scripture and the statement Jesus had made. Now remember, this whole thing took place during the Passover. And if you go throughout Jesus' ministry, there's actually a discussion of four Passovers. So we know that Jesus' ministry was at least, his public ministry was at least three years. At least three years. Three plus years. And then verse 23, it says this. While he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many trusted in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. What signs have been mentioned? I just read that whole section right there. Did I read any signs to you? (laughs) There were none mentioned there. But it says right here, many trusted in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Jesus had to be doing multiple signs during that time, but John never like wrote it down. They're never mentioned in the scripture. Jesus knew that this was his time when he went back to Jerusalem. He was going to have to prove himself, and so he was constantly doing signs. I can't tell you what they are because they're not mentioned here in scripture. But obviously, he did them. Verse 24, it says, Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all and because he did not need anyone to testify about man for he himself knew what was in a man. I know you're sitting there like going, well, what does that say? Jesus was saying this. I get, I get requests all the time, from, mainly from students, and maybe from some of you, to fill out character references. To send a reference letter or something about, to just speak of your character. And Jesus is like saying, I know all these men that are out here. I know what they're all about. I don't need any of them to speak for me. I let my character speak for itself. Everything that I do is God doing it in me. Why would I need man to speak for me? He proved himself through his signs. He proved himself through his own words. Then we get to John chapter 3 and that whole interaction with Nicodemus. It says there was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. That's important for you to understand right there. Nicodemus was a Jew, first of all. Second of all, he was a Pharisee. In other words, he knew the law better than most people. And not only did him call him a Pharisee, but he's a ruler of the Jews. So now he's a teacher He's a teacher, which is what Pharisees do. They were rabbis. But he's even like one of the main teachers as a rabbi. This is Nicodemus. 
This man came to him at night. Hmm. At night. Maybe privately. And said, Rabbi. Woo. He acknowledged him as a teacher. Nicodemus, the teacher of teachers, acknowledged Jesus as a teacher. He said, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with him. He's confessing. He's confessing that Jesus is of God. And then he asks the question, or Jesus replies, I assure you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then Nicodemus asks asks the question, but how can anyone be born when he's old? Again, he doesn't have the spirit in him, and he's thinking, he's thinking just physically about, <laughs> wait a second, how is somebody like reborn? He even asked the question, Nicodemus asked him, can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? It's kind of a ridiculous question, but the truth is, is that Nicodemus was a wise man. And through Jewish tradition, he knows that there's many opportunities that are spoken about being born again through the life of a Jewish person. One of those would be a conversion from a Gentile to a Jew to be born again. But we know that Nicodemus was a Jew, so Nicodemus is saying, that's not me. I can't be born again from being a Gentile to a Jew. The other thing that the the Jews knew is that if you were crowned to be a king, well, Nicodemus is saying, I've never been a king, so I can't be born again that way. Another thing is, to be born again at the age of 13, the Jewish boy went through a bar mitzvah. Well, Nicodemus has already, like, done that. He's an old man. How do you be born again? That can't be him. And then, of course, it also referred to being married as being born again. Once you got married, you were born again. You were a new person. Well, we know that as a Pharisee that he was part of the Sanhedrin, and to qualify being a a part of the Sanhedrin, you had to be married. So we know Nicodemus is married. Well, that couldn't be him. So when Jesus is saying, like, Nicodemus, you have to be born again. He's going through all this list in his head. And finally, the last one is, when you become a rabbi, you're born again. Well, Nicodemus was already a rabbi. And then you're born again if you become a leading teacher of the rabbis. That was already Nicodemus. Nicodemus is sitting there and asking Jesus, I've gone through this whole list of how to be born again and I don't know how to be born again. I can't re-enter my, other, my mother's womb. And Jesus answered, I assure you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Let's pause there a second. Because this little verse causes a lot of controversy. You have to run this verse through all 66 books. If I know that salvation comes, if I go all the way back to Genesis chapter 17, 
And know that salvation came to Abraham because Abraham simply believed in God. It wasn't his circumcision. It wasn't God giving him the law and obeying the law. It wasn't because he was a Jew. It wasn't because he was Abraham. It wasn't because he was baptized by water. It was simply because he believed. That's it. So I filter that verse right there and... I believe it says, I assure you, unless someone is born of water, he's talking about a natural birth. That you're born physically. Like your mother's water broke. So you're born physically, and then he says, and the spirit. I assure you, unless someone is born of water, physically born, and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He's looking at Nicodemus and he's trying to explain to him, look, Nicodemus, you'll one been born of water already physically. But if you're not born of the spirit. You're not born again. It says, whatever is born of the flesh is flesh. And whatever is born of the spirit is spirit. I will tell you that all day long. You have two choices. (laughs) Look, you have two choices all day long. You can either walk by your flesh or you can walk by the Spirit. There's a Spirit in you that's constantly telling you what to do. Constantly. I don't care if you're walking by your flesh, that Spirit will still tell you what to do. But you make the choice. And it's natural if you're born of the flesh for you to act out of the flesh. But if you're born of the Spirit, it's natural for you to be walk in the Spirit. It's two different natures. I have one nature. I have one nature. That's a holy nature. It's what Jesus did on the cross. He made me holy. He redeemed me. He forgave me. That battle that's going on inside of me is between the spirit and the flesh, not an old nature and a new nature. Two totally different things. It's not semantics. It says, do not be amazed that I told told you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases. And you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Every time I read that verse, I think of Billy Graham. You know, because Billy Graham said, you know, you can't see the Spirit. It's just like the wind. You can see it blow, and you can see it move things, but you can't see it. That's what Jesus is saying right there. And it says, How can these things be, asked Nicodemus. He's totally confused because he doesn't have the Spirit and he can't understand spiritual things. And Jesus says, are you a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? (laughs) Like, literally, you're, you're like one of the main teachers here and you can't, like, figure this thing out? Jesus replied, I assure you, we speak that we know and we testify to what we have seen. But you do not accept our testimony. Jesus is like, I'm doing everything I can, Nicodemus, to show you this. 
If I have told you about things that happen on earth and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you things about, the, about things of heaven? Like, literally, I'm doing things here on earth and you're seeing it and you're choosing not to believe it. How do you expect to believe things that are in heaven if you can't even believe this right here? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Hello, that's me. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. Look, Nicodemus, if you can't see that I'm the Messiah, I'm the Savior, you're out of luck. And then here it is. Here it is. He says to Nicodemus, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That's me, Nicodemus. That's me. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Nicodemus All you have to do is believe. All you have to do is believe that I'm the Son of God. And you'll have eternal life. You will be born again. For God did not send His Son into the world that He might condemn the world. Oh, that's a big deal. (laughs) We so easily memorize John 3.16, but we forget John 3.17. For God did not send His Son into the world that He might condemn the world. But that the world might be saved through Him. It's the whole reason Jesus came. Is to save, not to condemn. That's a loving God. It says, verse 18, we're getting ready to close it out. Anyone who believes in Him is not condemned. But anyone who does not believe is already condemned. Look, that belief right there, watch this, watch this, that belief right there, what's it based upon? It's based upon your choice. Whether you believe, Nicodemus, whether you don't believe, it's your choice. You're either not condemned or you condemn yourself. You either choose me as the Savior or you walk away from me. Your choice, Nicodemus. Your choice. Anyone who, do, who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and the only, the Son of God. Verse 19, it says, This then is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Those were the ones that choose to walk by their flesh. For everyone who practices wicked things hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to accomplish by God. I close out by saying this. If you take that last part of that verse and you twist it into something corrupt, that's your own problem. But here's what he said. Anyone who lives by the truth, that truth being the Spirit in me, that Spirit in me 
and me, watch this, me submitting to that spirit. Me submitting to that spirit, me being obedient to that spirit, me following that spirit, me doing those things, and watch this, actually the Father doing those things in me. It does this. It lives by the truth, and it comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. My works are not my works. Me speaking to you today, I pray that it's God alone. If it's me, you're in trouble. Seriously. I'll say it again. I say it all the time. Don't believe a word I say. Go to the word. Figure it out. I pray that God uses me and he uses you this week to do good works. Not because I have to. Not because it's my obligation. It's because I'm being obedient to the spirit and he's doing it through me. Just as Jesus did. Father, I pray that you would continue to unpack your word. That you would continue to show us how you work through us. It's amazing and it's an adventure. I pray that as they just read these red words by you, that you reveal it to them, that you enlighten us, all of us, this week, as we read your word, that it comes alive, and that it means something to us, and that it transforms not only our lives, but it transforms what we do. And I pray these things in Jesus' name.